How have your thoughts changed regarding the production of All Things Must Pass since it was first recorded in 1970? Well, in those days, it was like the reverb was kind of used a bit more than what I would do now. In fact, I don't use reverb at all. I can't stand it. But at the time, I did the record with Phil Spector, and we did it like Phil Spector would do it. You know, it's hard to go back to anything 30 years later and expect it to be how you would want it now. I I, I say if I did a record today in 30 years, I probably would want to change it. That's the only thing about the production. It was done in cinemascope and, uh, you know, it had a lot of reverb on it to what I would use now, but that was how it was and at that time I really liked it. Welcome to this week's one that is fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm still John Stone. That's right. And this has been a bigger week for announcements of Beatle things than we might have thought. <laughs> it's been a big week, Beetle Beatles. Yes, lots of new news and releases. And You and me must both be happy and not real happy, just because everything is so compressed this year. Right. With all these boxes plus what's coming out, I'm sure they're thinking, you know, if we'd really had this out over two years, we would have made half again as much. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. Because people do come back and pick up things, but not nearly as much as they do first off right at the beginning here. Right. And everybody ends up looking for the second generation sale or things like that. So whatever profits come next tend to be less profit so the first thing that we found out about ringo uh, came out on the tuesday and said everyone it's ringo i'm here and i'm coming to talk shop live with some news for you on august the 12th at 4 p.m my time la time check the link for exact times and how to tune in follow my talk shop live channel to be notified when i go live and see you there, peace and love. Talk Shop Live, you got it. It's like, thanks a lot, Ringo. <laughs> right. Look for me. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, then on the Thursday, uh, he came out and did an hour live thing. Uh, I'm not familiar with this platform that he did it on. It's a, it's a live streaming platform. It was a little bit too QVC for my tastes. Hmm. 
it was disguised as an interview, but it was clearly to both announce and sell the new EP. Right. It was that kind of place. And they screwed it up pretty badly because they were supposed to premiere the single at the end of the live stream, and they couldn't get it going. Oh, no. Well, that's too bad, really, because I think it's one of the best things Ringo's done in a long time. Really? Yeah, I like it a lot. I kind of find it more like everything else he's released in the last 10 or 15 years. It's the the stereotypical Ringo single. Well, see, I, I hear a different gravitas for the song. It's not the same chord changes. There's different stuff in this. The backing, I will agree with you, is different and it's interesting. It's He's still uh, strongly into those auto-tuned vocals. Which are a little bit like nails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> I guess people get that thing because you seem to hear it. I don't hear it so much. You know, my son is like that with CGI. He can always spot it always and me i'm just kind of like hey that looks pretty good <laughs> so i guess i'm the the audience they're aiming at he likes to play around with the delay in the auto-tune but here it's less of that sort of robotic auto-tune but it's very definitely still there auto-tune has a dial on it you want to change your pitch slowly otherwise it'll sound kind of funky just for fun i let that dial go to zero which is instantaneous that's the share effect that was the first time autotune was used in a way that I had not anticipated. Do you believe in life after love? I can feel something inside me say, I really don't think you're strong enough, no. Do you believe in life? What I like, I like the horns. I think those are real horns. I don't know. I think Steve Lukather and uh, he wrote it with, with his bandmate Toto. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I think they played, they may have just played the whole thing, did the backing track. Uh, um, no, because in, in that, in that QVC thing, the, the, the streaming QVC thing, he mentions that they had actually sent the backing to some folks that he knew in new Orleans. Ah, well, so that's why I say, I don't know if all of the horns are real horns, but I think uh, uh, at least some of them are. And if they aren't, that's a darn good job with the synthesized <laughs> horns. Right. And then yes. I like the chorus, all the voices coming in. Let's change the world. But the verses, the lyrics themselves, it's like, okay, Ringo, peace and love. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> well, you know, that's the same complaint people had about John Lennon. So, Yeah, but it's bordering on cliche a little bit here, Ringo. Right. I understand uh, what you're saying. Uh, Joseph Williams is the other one from Toto that you're thinking about. Ah, yeah, I will enjoy the tune. It's got a little bit harder edge than what I've heard Ringo do recently, which is why I liked it. I think I like most of the stuff off of Zoom In better. And... Things do grow on you. The the other tracks, which we haven't heard yet. We're hot off the press. Linda Perry wrote, wrote a song for me. Yep, and we'll talk uh, about that. As we've talked about, um, Luke and uh, Joe wrote one. 
uh, Bruce and I wrote one, and yep. the other one, I'm not even going to tell you the name because I want to surprise we're, people. Yeah, we're going to talk oh, about that. It's an old rock song. Love it. It's amazing. Uh, well, he's doing a cover of Rock Around the Clock. Oh, yeah. I wonder if he remembers that he did that with John Lennon and Harry for the Pussycats <laughs> album. <laughs> yeah, well. The infamous, how many drummers can we get on one version of this song? As did he cut Back Off Boogaloo like three times. <laughs> this one's called Back, Back Off Boogaloo. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> he redid money off of his last album. There's an overuse of auto-tune, but <laughs> it was meant to be that way. Money don't get everything, it's true. But what it don't get, I can't use. Oh, uh, well, I haven't heard the, the entire EP. If we won't hear the title track. The other three we won't hear until it's actually released. Well, I think it's interesting that that seems to be what a lot of people are doing, just EPs, rather than working for a full LP or or album or whatever you want to call it now people don't even buy music that way much they buy the singles although it, another thing that Ringo mentioned is like I've been thinking uh, to, about doing another one this year great and uh, and then next year you know we'll put it out as a as it's whatever the four tracks are but then I think nearer next Christmas God we're living in the future uh, put them all on a an album and put it out like that you know so as a total collection it's only a thought we'll see what happens yeah well i'll wait then <laughs> new strategies again i understand that it's like you'd rather just record four or five songs at once great go ahead yeah i mean especially because let's face it there's a limited audience for anything that's coming from ringo he's not gonna have a number one single well, there's all sorts of things to take into consideration. He's 80. That as well. He records some songs and he wants to get them out. So he puts them out in smaller batches. Maybe the best way for him to accomplish recording. Now, I, don't, I don't even know whether recording these days is difficult for him. Well, right. I mean, the, the studio is in his guest house. Right. And, you know, so that's where you see him doing all these interviews. He is physically not having any issues with recording. We that's just true. come in and do our stuff. Well, that's good. He's happy. He'll he'll just, if he wants to play, he just goes up and goes over and knocks off some tracks. And he, he does, he's fond of the fact that he doesn't have to go to the studio anymore to record. He's like the rest of us, except he's got better equipment. <laughs> right. The best. You know, it's a very small studio. It's been everything, all the, the amps and the drums are in there. And this room, probably 15 by 15, has all the equipment and the, you know, the pro tools and computers. Right. And over there, where you see a bit of that blackness, 
there's a microphone there and all the vocals, uh, all the acoustic guitars, everything's done in that little place over there. Is that right? So nothing expressive or expansive, you know? Okay, so we move on from Ringo and his auto-tune. Mark Ronson uh, did a series on Apple TV+, and the first episode is all about auto-tune. Right. What a segue. <laughs> As we've determined, I am now the master of segways, Roger. <laughs> so watch the sound with Mark Ronson. The series is interesting. It has some highs and some lows. He kind of goes around and talks about the sorts of tools that you find in studios these days, ranging from real honest-to-goodness reverb to plate reverb to auto-tune to this thing called the Harmony Engine, which is the next generation of auto-tune. Yeah, you know, the, the whole concept of a producer has changed so much over the years that Mark Ronson and, and other people, Pharrell, and the producers are the artists as well. They produce other people. I know that everyone thinks Uptown Funk is Bruno Mars, but it, it's Mark Ronson's single. <laughs> well, and that also reminds me of what Paul did, you know, on four or five seconds. It's like, well, that's what he said. Is you know, I thought we were just sitting around chatting, and I was you know noodling on the guitar, and then six weeks later, I get this single. It's like, <laughs> did I play on that? Did I write that? Right. So, okay. <laughs> because you can take people's ideas and so much control them and alter them and cut them up and put them in different forms that that producing skill becomes the artistic thing itself. But we mentioned that for a couple of reasons. First off, in that first episode, well, throughout the series, you have Ronson sitting down with some of his famous friends, including one Sir Paul. Sir Paul and friend. Say sorry. Yeah, auto-tune. I will use it. Yeah. You know, if I've done a vocal that I don't think is that good, so come on, let's stick it through. <laughs> Why not? I say that if John Lennon had had an opportunity he would have been all over it. Yeah. Not so much to fix your voice, yeah. but just to play with it. Yeah. He would be doing different things with it because uh, I think he just likes the whole manipulation of his voice and good things. So I think there's all sorts of stuff he'd be doing. After that clip from Paul, Ronson sits down with Sean and Sean brings the tapes for Hold On. Yeah, They take John's vocal, the, the isolated lead vocal, and run it through the harmony engine. The first time you hear it, it's like, oh, uh, 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 I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, John. John, hold on. It's going to be all You're going to win the fight. But then, then they sort of play it back and, and they layer the unadorned vocal over the harmony engine and it kind of starts to come together. It's like, oh, well, gee, that actually does sort of work. Yeah. And I think the goal, as far as I can tell, of the harmony engine is actually to sort of automate the kind of thing that George did on My Sweet Lord. One or two vocals and then you can pitch them up and you can pitch them down and you can create a whole sort of choir out of it. Right. And, you know... You can change time just by fractions so that it becomes a, a chorus rather than just a voice. Change pitches. When you're by yourself and there's no one else, you just have yourself. 
any machine is only as soulful as the person that's playing it. So it does have something to do with our main topic, which we'll get to in just a minute here. <laughs> right. So, so the last bit of news is Tony Bramwell on his Facebook page came out and said, oh, look for an announcement at the end of the month of a Let It Be box. It should be out on the 15th of October. Right. Look for it. <laughs> well, that, that message has since disappeared, so someone at Apple was not happy, or it was a promotional stunt. <laughs> Nothing is real. <laughs> that is becoming your catchphrase here. It, it really is. You know, it's like you just never know whether, like, this is what is going on or we're all being manipulated. A bit of both. Yeah. This is great. You know, this is exciting. This also means that we are out absolutely reviewing till the end of the year. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think well, we were kind of discussed, you know, speculating as to what this might be as a let it be project as opposed to a get back project. Yeah, I mean, that's the first question. Are they going to have a separate audio soundtrack to Peter Jackson's Get Back? I would guess so, since they're not releasing the film on home video. You know, it's Disney exclusive through the end of the year, at least. Right. It is all coordinated, so Apple is going to put it out in a way where they can maximize their impact. So I don't know how close a Let It Be thing would be to a Get Back thing. I'm using the term get back is yeah. Peter Jackson's project. But again, COVID has basically ruined all plans for everything as far as what's hitting the market when. They wouldn't have done what they did with All Things Must Pass and the Plastic Ono Band box and get back. <laughs> and yet. You know, not to mention 321 and Ringo's two EPs and, and McCartney three. So Yeah, but I'm sure it's all coordinated. But Ringo or Paul, they're not on Apple. <laughs> So how much they coordinate with Apple may be up for speculation. Well, but it's now all through UME. I mean, you know, I think they do do a fair bit more coordinating, certainly more coordinating than they did in 1970. <laughs> Brick through yeah. the window. But I think they do certainly talk to each other about release dates. And this is not something that they would have normally done in a normal year if we ever get one of those again. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that could be. They're in their offices trying to figure out, okay, so here's the pandemic. What are we going to do about this? So their original plans may have gone out the window, but they still got a plan. <laughs> as far as what's on it, if we say four CDs and a Blu-ray, the Blu-ray would be Let It Be The Film. Right, and hopefully a cleaned-up version. And maybe a 5-1 or an Atmos of, of the original Let It Be album. Well, you know, speculation would be what would you put on it because – uh, how much of it to, is in yeah no yeah it, it, you, you that, have you have two glenn john versions well three but they, they're not gonna release any more than one of the glenn john's versions right i don't think they, they would release two separate ones so would they put naked on there i would i would say the the remixed album one of the glenn john's mixes naked and then probably whatever outtakes they can come up with then and, and there are certainly outtakes that are not nagras because they did do a bunch of studio sessions so we could probably get a disc worth of outtakes yeah possibly but that may be a big part of what peter jackson's thing is is to reveal that aspect of it i'm sure they're working on it but i'm just glad to know that it's on the horizon even though that does mean more money <laughs> 
we've gone way past that three thousand dollars now. Yeah, I'm. I'm just gonna have to put my thirteen year old to work. That's all it is. <laughs> hey. You know, that's what ice cream parlors are for, right? <laughs> Baskin Robbins right, go, right. go scooping. We got a box set to buy here. <laughs> it's for the good of the farm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to split up all things must pass a little bit just because nobody really wants to talk about both sides of the apple jam at once. Right. This is all things must pass, but not quite yet. LP1 of all things must pass. And side five, the original first side of the Apple Jam disc. Right. Starts with I'd Have You Any Time. A beautiful song that, for me, really benefits from this new mix. George's lead vocal is very clear now. Much more intimate, you know. You know, there's some song where the the new mix, I won't say it hurts it, but it it's just significantly different than the original. Yeah, we can talk about those as we come to them, I guess. It's not a 100% hit. I mean, not everything is as successful as I would have liked to have been. But this one, this song in particular. This is a winner. Yes, I agree with you. Speaking in generalities, I think the Lennon, the Plastic on a Band remix may have been a little bit more successful of the album proper than this one, but this is not bad. I mean, some of the issues you have with doing a remix are what's baked into the tapes. Yes. I just wonder whether we should have had Danny do Plastic Ono and Sean. <laughs> now, that, that would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah. I also have to say that I'd Have You Any Time is probably the most melodic Bob Dylan song ever. Dylan can write melodies, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. He often just didn't want to. His stuff is much more organic. For, for the McCartney tribute a couple of years back, the Art of McCartney, Dylan covered Things We Said Today, and it's just the weirdest combination. It's not bad, but Dylan takes the melody out of Things We Said Today in his cover, and it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, it's worth looking up uh, if you haven't listened to it in a while. That's so Dylan. <laughs> the second track is, well, My Sweet Lord. I think that the lead vocal in particular was served a little bit better on the original, they're very, very dry here. Yes. Yeah, it flowed a little bit better on the original, but the chorus, the backing is so much better in this version. Yeah, my complaint was that the acoustic guitars that start this thing up hit me harder on the original version than this one. They just don't have that punch. Right. The slide, there's actually, you, you can feel that a little bit more, I think. Yes, I agree. You know, because the balance is different, and I, I kind of miss that the punch of the acoustics. So that, that's my only complaint. Badfinger probably misses that as well. Yeah, yeah. What happened to my guitar? So, what do you think about the the whole Chiffon's "He's So Fine" thing? Subconscious plagiar- plagiarism is what they call it. Yeah. Well, I mean, he did, and it wasn't the first time he had a tendency to do that. Often he'll he'll do it again on this album, and uh, it's okay. There's been a recent controversy over a Elvis Costello song. Elvis Costello has defended pop star Olivia Rodrigo after she was accused of lifting one of his guitar riffs. 
Brutal, a track on Rodrigo's number one album, is based around a punk chord sequence that also featured in Costillo's 1978 hit Pump It Up. But when a Twitter user said Rodrigo's song was pretty much a direct lift, Costillo replied and said that this was fine with him. It is how rock and roll works, he continued. Take the broken pieces of another thrill and make a brand new toy, he said. And that's what I did, as in him himself. The veteran singer-songwriter also included hashtags referencing Bob Dylan's 1965 classic Subterranean Homesick Blues, which inspired Pump It Up, and Chuck Berry's 1956 single Too Much Monkey Business, which influenced the Dylan song. So I think George had a tendency to do that. But I, I can also hear equally as much Oh Happy Day, the Edwin Hawkins singer's version in particular. Well, do you hear it melodically, or do you hear it in the way things are presented the delivery more than anything else you know oh happy day right hurry Krishna. yeah um but but that was the attitude and and he's certainly open to that even that like you say that that's kind of the same you know my sweet lord you know oh happy day you know it's the, the it's a very similar delivery okay well you know i think that that uh the tune certainly is um the same uh, um, as as he's uh, so fine, he's yeah, so no, fine. yeah, and, certainly. And, and it really was, I think, even more than just that tune part. It's when the the chords change to the next to the the B part was exactly the same as well. I really yeah. want to see the da 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 da. You know, that was just too much, I think, for the presiding people. Well, of course, that's what John Lennon said. Is like, you know, I would have told him, just change a couple notes, nobody will notice. Yeah, and you heard it in the 2000 remake of it. Um, Which I would have liked to have had in this set, but oh well. Yeah, you know, he did that very thing. He just didn't sing those particular notes. Well, and Billy Preston didn't either in the first released version of My Sweet Lord. And Billy's version doesn't sound like the chiffons. Right. It's that development of a tune from writing it to having a finished record, all sorts of things. New ideas come up. So the time between Billy Preston having the song and the time that George cut it, he just kind of probably developed it more. And it all worked out for the best. The Harrison Estate owns both tunes, and we really and truly learned just how much of a slime Alan Klein actually was. He bought Bright Tunes for the express purpose of keeping the lawsuit going. Yeah. <laughs> this song has nothing bright about it. And so, the, of course, the final judgment was, okay, you just pay Klein for what he paid for Bright Tunes. You now own Bright Tunes, and we're never addressing this again. Okay, track three, Wawa. Wawa. We, yeah, we talked a little bit about it. It's the big song. This is one which, upon further re-listenings to this version, I can actually hear the differences a bit more than I did before, but it's still a very much a, a stew of sound. Right. It makes me wonder, you know, I don't have this information. Maybe you do. How much Phil arranged. I know he was not part of a lot of the making of the album, but in the beginning he was... And then he kind of disappeared. So I don't know what songs he personally was responsible for arranging. But Wawa sounds like he was all over it. I think the, the arrangement is part of it. But more of it was just the way in which Phil 
had the album or had this track in particular recorded. You know, he wanted just a big sound and he wanted as many musicians playing on each individual track as he possibly could. And so, you know, you get 180 guitars and two sets of horns and, but only ever one drummer and one bass player. You didn't have two drummers and two bass players playing at once. And we learned that of course, that may be why the bass and the drums get lost a little bit. Uh, on this one, yeah. On this one, so. Uh, well, there's also a lot of s- stuff going on. You know, you you have the, the wah-wah guitar, and then that horn line is pretty busy. And so it becomes a wash. And then when you throw in the mass choir, it just gets kind of busy. But we do get George's vocal a little bit clearer, I think. Yeah.
like I said in the last show, you know, I actually prefer the day two just George and his guitar demo to to the finished version of this song. Yeah. In some ways, All Things Was Past was the big production. But if you're to listen to the other discs that come along with this, it's more of what was going on with Get Back, which was some musicians sitting around playing basic versions of songs. And so a lot of these demos are are really nice. They give you a a great view of of a a song stripped. I mean, that's what Danny says as well, that what they really wanted to do in this box was... Have you tried to look through and find the ones that were kind of different or showed the process of how the song got from A to B or how it got from day one demos, day two demos, and then to the finished recording. Right. And, and they do a great job, seriously. Okay, the last song on side one of the LP, the long version of Isn't It a Pity. Now, you can't say that that is not George trying to ape Hey Jude. Not musically. The chords are all different. It's a different song, but the style is very clearly he's doing Hey Jude. He, I think, appreciated the, the mantra of the end of Hey Jude. There's that, but there's also the fact that instead of a piano, you start with a, a single acoustic guitar, and then you get the vocal, and then you get a tambourine, and then like at a minute in, you start getting the drums. The arrangements are mirror images of each other almost. This particular mix of it actually brings it closer to Hey Jude, because the original mix was big, and this to me really starts off more intimate and so it actually is a more hey jude version than the one that we originally heard although not quite as much as the concert for george version (laughs) there they make no bones about it we're doing a copy of hey jude here (laughs) the the na na na's are a little bit muted at the end of this version of isn't it a pity live on stage no they're they're just belting it out Do you prefer this version or do you prefer the other version of Isn't It a Pity? I've always preferred this version. It's just, it's grand. I kind of like the rock version, which is what it might have been as a Beatles song. I can see that. This is almost sort of George expressing his feelings on, I really wanted to play that line in Hey Jude, so I'm going to do my own version. (laughs) Well, could be. Not that it takes anything away from the song, but someone described it as the yin to Hey Jude's yang, and it's like, yeah, I can see that. Okay, so we flipped the record over. Now we get another big song. We get What Is Life. I've always loved the horns on this song. Yes, me too. This is as aimed at the pop charts as almost anything else he did with the riff and the the whole big thing. The demo illustrates, in a way, how close this song is to If Not For You. Same chords, same feel, just a little bit different. But you can sing If Not For You on top of what he's doing on the guitar. Mm, This was really one of the first slide songs that George had come up with. Right. I understand it was Frampton on the the riff. And then George just hands me his Les Paul, the famous one. So then I start playing rhythm because he is the Beatles lead guitar player. That's right. uh, So he says, no, no, I'm playing rhythm. I want you to play lead, you know. Wow. So I swallowed hard and I ended up playing the main guitar riffs on this. But that's George playing the slide. Yes. And it's amazing to think that here he is, not even really six months after learning to play the slide, coming up with these lines. That's really the big 
experimental aspect of this album for George, I think, is because it was like, this is a new language for me. Also interesting that it was a point of contention when the Threedles got together for those recordings because... Uh, Paul didn't want the slide. Yeah, it was more George than it was the Beatles. That's not George playing the slide on For You Blue. You know, it's like, it's John playing the slide. Right. George first played the slide uh, on the Delaney and Bonnie tour. Uh, apparently, uh, Dave Mason had been on the tour with him, and Dave Mason had, had come up with his slide part. And, it was, and when George joined, replacing Mason, it's like, well, you got to play this. So that's how he learned to play the slide. Pretty amazing. It's real similar to his sitar story about it. It's all kind of an accident. It just shows you how quick all four of them were. I mean, you going back to, here's a bass, Paul. You're going to play on the record H.E. Sweet tomorrow. Right. They were really engaged. You can learn something and not re- ever really do anything with it. But here, play this guitar part, and suddenly you're in your hotel just playing licks and starting to write these songs. It's real close to when that all happened, and he's cutting. I haven't really sat down to see how many songs on this album he used that slide. I mean, it's, it's at least four or five. Yeah, it's pretty dominant. The next up is, uh, if not for you. The model for Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> Very much a pop song. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about that already. It's a good little track. It is. And, and you know, Dylan's version doesn't sound like that. And so George did what a lot of people have done with Dylan songs, taken that thing and made it nice and commercial. It was a real delight to hear it when I first heard it. Then we get the country song, Behind That Locked Door. Were you aware of Pete Drake much before that? I guess Nashville Skyline. No, didn't know him at all. His association with Ringo was around kind of the same time. I think I heard Pete Drake through Ringo's thing first before I you know, read publicity about the album, discovered that he was on that. But. Well, it's a great story for a number of reasons. I mean, first off, uh, Ringo picking him up and, and him going through Ringo's tapes in his car. It's like, oh, you <laughs> like country, do you? Yeah. And then second off, Frampton being around. The talking guitar made Frampton's career. <laughs> right. <laughs> Without Pete Drake, there is no Frampton Comes Alive. Could well be. Who'd have thought? I thought it was interesting that you know he did it, if not for you, and then the, the next song is a song he actually wrote for dinner. George has said that it was written in the style of Nashville Skyline. Right. I believe he said he, he'd written it the night before Bob's uh, Isle of Wight show. Well, it's a cool song, authentic. You know, it does. he's not making fun of that kind of music at all. Oh, absolutely. That's George doing all of the acoustic parts and all of the backing vocals. Yeah. I say that thinking that... A lot of times when the Stones would do country, it's always kind of a joke. You know, it's meant to be an homage. Well, but Dead Flowers is, n- is not really a joke song. <laughs> what was it, Willie Nelson who said that's the best country song ever written? <laughs> well, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yes, the Stones had trouble playing country straight, maybe with the exception of Dead Flowers. And he, even that, there's definitely a tongue-in-cheek thing there going on. Yeah, that, that's really what I meant. But this could be a George Jones song behind my black door. It's just, you know, it's, it's real country music. Well, that's what George says. It, it was just a good excuse to do a country tune and play some pedal steel guitar. <laughs> and, you know, the Beatles loved that. It wasn't just Ringo who loved that. Oh, yeah. You know, George's taste in music was pretty extensive and universal. At the end of his life, he was way into ukuleles and that style of music. 
you know, the old song, Devil of the Deep Blue Sea. And, I mean, he loved that sort of thing. That was really part of his vocabulary. All sorts of musics were in his past. Then the next song is Let It Down, which George had written for the Beatles, but they turned it down. <laughs> I read that, and it always seems like it was some sort of business process. Well, he submitted this song, and we turned it down. You know, I mean, it never was like that. It's like, do you get any traction on it? Well, nobody's really coming up with any new ideas. Or... He played it three or four times. From what we can hear, none of the others really buzzed on it. Right. They weren't like, oh, no, that's awful. But it's like nothing really came of it. This is one of the songs that they actually had to take over to Trident because George wanted to do some more vocal overdubs. I guess Trident was, what, 16 track at that point, and EMI was still at 8? Right. So that seems to have been George's policy, is like, we'll record as much as we can at EMI. If it gets to be too much and we can't bounce down anymore, then we'll copy the tapes and we'll continue at Trident. And in the notes from Phil Spector, there's a partial copy on the internet. There's a full copy in the Womack and Krupa book. Phil is basically giving his final mixing notes to George on All Things Must Pass. What he says most frequently throughout all of his notes is, bring up your lead vocal. There's certainly times in that original album where his vocal was buried. And then, of course, the horns. I mean, again, you know, George was so good with horns behind him. Yeah, he, he was. So, okay, then, then the last song on, on the first album is, is Run of the Mill. It was Liverpool slang for average. It, it, it always felt to me like it was conveying a message to somebody. Some people think that this is George complaining about the other Beatles, that, that run, run of the mill means, oh, your songs are just run of the mill. No, they're not. <laughs> that was the most common response he got from John and Paul. Yeah, he never sings that lyric. <laughs> Nowhere in the song do the words run of the mill appear. Also not appearing in this film. You know, I have always had a special place in my art for run of the mill because it's the song when I originally bought the album. It was like I hadn't heard anyone play the acoustic guitar that way. That opening was really cool. And the guitar work really comes out in this mix. Yeah, I like what George says uh, in his book on the lyrics. You know, he says that this is the first time that he, he could write out the lyrics and it read like a poem, as opposed to just normally lyrics look like lyrics to him. Yes. And actually, Lennon said the same thing about Across the Universe, that it was a work in itself. It looks like a poem. Let's move on to, to side five, jams. Jams in general, they're a lot more fun to play in than to listen to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Clocking in at 11 minutes, I just didn't hear much that wasn't, I don't know. They're making Eric happy. They're they're playing a little blues riff there. You know, Bobby Keys' sax is nice, but yeah, it's it's eleven minutes. Right. <laughs> it's just basically a, a riff. Yeah. So I and it's not even a complicated riff. It's it's just uh, like one one chord really. It's not particularly clever. I mean, you know, I don't want to say it's crap, but it's uh, as you said. 
a lot more fun to play on than to listen to. But yep. yeah, I, you know, again, if you're going to give us the third disc for free as it originally was, okay, fine. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a kind of playing that George was not famous for. And so it was a different kind of sound from the rest of the record. Then the second track on the jam disc is it's Johnny's Birthday. Now, we all know the story about that, that Yoko was collecting birthday messages, audio messages for John for his 30th birthday. And so George just dashed in and did this. Right. And this is where he got a slap on the hands because it's a song, a big song in England called Congratulations. It was by Cliff Richard. melody is exactly the same but it was because it was a birthday joke to give to john how it ended up on the album was probably just a joke it wasn't meant to be anything yeah but they still did need to credit the original authors he he got sued and, and the credit was added so yeah but and it's funny because that team had been sued by an irish band they had a song called far away from here and they said that they had taken the melody and it's similar and so they got sued and then two years later they sue george round and round in circles yeah the other interesting thing is that bill martin one of the songwriters is the man who bought kenwood from huh Now, the birthday collection is probably best known for the fact that Janis Joplin recorded something for it, put it in the mail, and died before it showed up. Yeah. So, you know, John got this uh, posthumous message, like, you know, two days after Janis Joplin had passed. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, considering what John was going through, that would not have been a nice birthday surprise. No, kind of sad. You know, his 30th birthday, that was a big deal. He said many times he wasn't going to be a 30-year-old Beatle. And, and since he was coming down off of Primal, it's like, the last song on side one of the jam disc is Plug Me In. Yes. There's a couple more chords in it, and it's not 11 <laughs> minutes, so, you know, that's good. <laughs> so, when, when one of the best things you can say about a song is that it's not 11 minutes, I'm thinking... It's not scoring big. I mean, you know, to be honest, I uh, bought the album when it came out and loved the album. And I think I played that last record once or twice. Well, I would say definitely more than once, but probably not more than five. Well, I mean, you know, I haven't played beyond that probably since the 30th anniversary where they resequenced the Apple Jam for no apparent reason. <laughs> We're going to fool you. The long track, Out of the Blue, got moved to the end of the disc. <laughs> and it's like They put the single in front. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I think uh, Plug Me In has a more commercial uh, appeal than... <laughs> Who knows? I'd rather have it than not, but other than just as a historical curiosity, there's really not much there. Right. And it, it may well be 
more significant to the Derek and the Dominoes people than it is to the George Harrison people. This is true. Because, I mean, you know, George is playing there, but one of the jams that we'll talk about next week dates back to John Lennon's session. Right. It was not, not recorded for All Things Must Pass. And it just sort of sat around, and then, you know, I guess George needed to finish the album, so. <laughs> Got any spare jams? So John does actually appear on All Things Must Pass. <laughs> Sort of. And would but, steal uh, the title out of the blue. Almost. John would remove a word and uh, change out of the blue to out the blue. Right. Then uh, Paul would take some lyrics into Let Me Roll It. Hmm. Well, everybody was listening to that album, I guess. I don't think either of those were necessarily intentional. It's still kind of interesting. You know, uh, I also think that the songs, because you mentioned they'd be interesting to fans of Derek and the Dominoes, that these versions are the Dominoes without Dwayne Allman. Yep. So this is how the band kind of sounded before, because Dwayne didn't join up until they came to America with the board. Yeah, all the stuff that was done in Miami. Right. The the history and the ties between those two, I mean, Ken Womack and, and Jason Krupa wrote an entire book on that. So if you don't have it and you want to know more about both All Things Must Pass, uh, the Layla album, and how the two of them tie together, that's your book. Get it now. Well, you don't have to get it now. I mean, it's, <laughs> Lots of box sets coming. It's new. It's not going out of print anytime soon, but uh, <laughs> you can wait for the paperback. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> box sets and books. We're just overrun with them. <laughs> It's filling up every possible corner of your house. This is true. I remember years ago, there was a, a National Lampoon. The whole issue was dedicated to the Beatles. And it was hilarious. But one of the ads in the, this magazine had a girl who rings under her eyes and her hair is just a mess. And she's clearly kind of out of her mind. And the caption read, Beatlemania. It isn't pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that issue of National Lampoon is known for a couple of reasons. The the, the bulldozer on Abbey Road. <laughs> right. Then the Little Red album. Yes. And then that would also be all tied up with Genius's Pain. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was a, a record, I think. Tony Hedra doing John Lennon. but Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, that's All Things Must Pass. That's disc one and side one of the jams. We've got... Uh, Disc two and side two of the jams next week. Right. And then we still have day one, and then we have the demos disc. So we've got we got a good three weeks at least left here, which should slide us right into the Ringo EP. Although we're only doing one week on that, folks. Then probably not even a full week. Four songs that's, you know. If he would have done a full album, we'd do at least two weeks on it. Hopefully we'll have a little bit more clarification on what's going on with Let It Be, but I have no reason to disbelieve Tony Bramwell, and you know we know a box is coming, so this is as good a time for an announcement as anything. Yeah, well, I, I do hope they split up the the two projects, you know. Um, well, they're, they're going to have to. I mean, especially since the, the rumor is that they've actually scaled down this box a little bit. Because they've been talking about, you know, maybe a, a six or a seven disc box before. And so my guess is they actually decided to hold back some of the material for Peter Jackson and this 
hypothetical soundtrack we've been bouncing around. Right. So I just don't know how much they're going to be able to get out of the Nagras because, you know, even if you do uh, A, B, and C rolls together, you're still going to have beeps all over the place because they don't completely overlap. Right. Again, while that's something that we will put up with, I'm not so sure how much the general public would listen to that. Well, the the abilities to manipulate sound these days, or if you put enough money to it. <laughs> it may well be that you can separate out enough and get enough volume that you can regenerate what's underneath that beep. That's where we're at. We still got at least three more weeks on All Things Must Pass. And... Uh, on our way out the door, I did finally get my box. I'm I'm very happy with with the Uber box. The figures are very nice. Are they good bath toys? They did a really good job with the box. Actually, in value, it probably is a couple hundred dollars worth of value in terms of the materials that went into it just stuff. Yeah, print, you know, printing the book, uh, just creating the the gnomes and there's Joppa beads and various other things. It's like. Yeah, no, they actually did put some cost into this. That's cool. Did they include the uh, original poster? Yes. A a full-size copy of the original poster. That's good. Now, now other people are are not happy because those Target-exclusive discs that I told you that are supposed to have stickers in them, Uh these stickers did not come in the boxes. So... For the most part, there are all these uh, two CD copies of All Things Must Pass with a Target-exclusive hype sticker on the front, but no actual All Things Must Pass stickers. <laughs> Somebody's head will roll. <laughs> Collectors are unhappy about that. Yeah. And yeah, Target's probably not going to be real pleased because uh, a slew of these will be coming back, I'm sure. Well... I mean, everyone who bought them for the express purpose of the stickers. Not that there's that many crazy collectors out there, but, well, I did. <laughs> I put another 15 bucks out just for the stickers, and it's like, hey, where are the stickers? <laughs> well, you know, but you didn't have to call yourself crazy. Yeah, well, again, Beatlemania, it's not pretty. You it are, is not pretty. You are it's correct. Not Nothing more true has ever been said. All right, so we'll be back next week with LP2 of All Things Must Pass and and side two of the jams. Maybe the, the better side of the jams, I think. We'll see. Not, not, the, <laughs> not, not that we've been all, all that praising of the jams this week. <laughs> you know, everything was recorded for somebody. All right, talk to you then. All right, see you again. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. So, George, in closing, how would you sum up All Things Must Pass today? I don't know. I just, some think that 
was like my continuation from the Beatles, really. It was me sort of getting out of the Beatles and just going my own way. And so as my first record, it was very uh, happy occasion. I think in some ways it stands up. It, I mean, it does the sound on some of the records are uh, you know, a bit old, it sounds a bit old, but um, you know, I think it kind of stands up still enough to justify what we're doing. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Free. 